Turn to Acts 20. We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 38. And I'm going to be, when we read this, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. How do you say goodbye? When you say goodbye to people, what do you say? How do you put it? In uh, the movie, The uh, Sound of Music, you may remember that the Von Trapp family, they said it in several different languages. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, adieu, au revoir, goodbye. In Acts 20, Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey, and he's saying goodbye, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he's bypassed the city of Ephesus. He's on a ship. They've bypassed Ephesus, and they've landed, made port 30 miles down the coast at the city called Miletus, and it's there that he calls the elders of Ephesus to join him, and he's going to speak to them there. Let me read the words, what he said. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul, and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. And they were, and they were accompanying him to the ship. Paul knew that he would never see them again. And Paul didn't just say goodbye, but he also warned them of, very, of a very clear and present danger there was to the church in Ephesus, where he'd ministered for three years there. And he charged them to do their job of shepherding the flock. We see that charge in verse 29. We, we hear the warning. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Imagine if you were a new believer in, in Ephesus and you just started attending the church and you heard of Paul's warning to the church there. He talked about savage wolves coming in there. You might respond by saying, well, I, I just came to know Christ. I'm just getting to know what the Bible says and, and what, how, what to believe. How do I know what to believe? How do I know who to listen to? Those are really good questions, aren't they? Well, God provides for that. He provides an answer, and that's in the first point that we see here. It's the Spirit's design. Guess what? When God designed the church, 
he took care of the need that there would be danger because it was designed by God. The church was not thrown together on the fly by the apostles. They didn't just look around where they were and see, well, how are other organizations organized? What are the Kiwanis Club like? And what do they do in the Rotary? And what do they do in, in the business at the college over there? How do they organize themselves? Let's take and pick and choose the things we like best from these organizations and we'll just apply them to the church. No, they didn't do it that way. The church design, the church was designed by God. Why do I say that? Well, listen to a couple passages. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Paul said, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. The whole design, shepherds, elders, that's part of God's design. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, God appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers. And then he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. God is the one who placed people and different roles and different spiritual gifts and how the church is to function as a body. He's the one that designed all that. And so now we come to Acts 20, verse 28. Paul tells the elders to guard the flock. And he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See, it was God, the Holy Spirit, who placed them in the position as elders there of the church. Think about it. Who was to take care of the church after the apostles died off, after they were gone? There was no There's no successors that are named uh, specifically like that. The idea of popes taking their place isn't biblical. It's found nowhere in Scripture. But as we look at the book of Acts, and we'll see this in the next few weeks, the apostles passed the care of the local church on to the elders of that local church. They, they passed the care on to the elders. Now, Acts 20:28, 20, Paul refers to those who are going to lead the flock by three titles. He says, number one, to the elders. That's one title. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you, number two, overseers. To shepherd, that's number three, the church of God. In one breath, he identifies them as elders, overseers, and those who shepherd. Now, the word elder comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means an older, more mature person. Now, the Presbyterian Church, they take the name of their denomination from that idea of elders leading in the church. Presbyteros, Presbyterian. The word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. Sound familiar? Like a, denom a denomination, the Episcopal Church? Okay, episkopos an episcopos was one whose job was to watch over things and so the church of the philippians received a letter from paul who was addressed to them and to the overseers the episcopoi and deacons of the church first timothy 3 paul addressed the qualifications of elders and he called the elders overseers and first peter 5 uh, Peter tells the elders that they are to shepherd the flock. And so 
They are elders, they're overseers, they're shepherds. All three words describe the same group of individuals, the same role. Elders are older, mature men who lead. They also oversee, they have charge over the flock, and they shepherd or they care and guard, guard the church. And in the book of Acts, we see that Paul's pattern in the New Testament is that when people came to Christ, that he would gather them together as a local body of believers called the ecclesia or the church we know of, of it as. And he would then, they would appoint elders to care for that local flock. And in every case, it was always a group of godly men. And we see that pattern. The first time we see it is, is Acts 14.23 in Paul's first missionary journey he had gone from Pisidian Antioch up to Iconium and then Lystra and then Derby, and when he got to Derby, he had the choice what's he going to do? Shall I just keep on going and head east to go home? No he turned around and he revisited every city, revisited every church, and verse 23 tells us that he appointed elders in every church there Titus 1 he told Titus to appoint elders in every city on the island of Crete so his job was to appoint them on Crete well how were they appointed well Paul Timothy and Titus identified individuals and they point, appointed them we don't see a vote taking place they didn't have an elections for popularity no it was that they were first recognized for having godly character and the qualifications of an elder and that they could do the job as, as an elder and they were appointed by those individuals. And God was so intimately involved in that process that it's kind of surprising. Verse 28, Paul said, the Holy Spirit made or placed you, placed the elders in that role in the church of Ephesus. Well, there's a second point for us to see, and that's the sheep's guards. Look at verse 28, again, where Paul tells the elders, be on guard. Look at verse 31, he adds, be on the alert. Why? Because the church is in danger. Now, you've all seen it before, football games, where you see a football player, he's running down the field, he's got the ball, and he's holding it out in front of him, running like this, showboating, cocky, arrogant, probably thinking, no one's going to be able to take this ball out of my hands. Well, that word guard, it means hold it close. Just what that coach would probably tell that player to do. You hold the ball close to you. You hold it toward you. And Paul is painting the exact opposite picture of the cocky showboating football player. He's saying the elders are to hold the flock close to them, to guard them. Elders aren't optional. They're standard equipment in God's design. There's no other individual or group that God's word says is to lead the church, but they're also to care for and to protect it. And that's what Paul focuses on as he says goodbye to these elders from Ephesus. And you know, you've been, all been on planes before, I assume, that, that uh, before the plane takes off, they give you that safety talk. And they tell you, what are you supposed to do when your mask falls down in front of you? If you've got a child next to you, what are you supposed to do? You put the your own mask on first. Well, 
Paul's basically saying the same thing to these elders. The first thing that they need to do if they're going to protect the flock is make sure that they're not being careless in their own spiritual lives. Be on guard for yourselves. Make sure that you pay attention to your own spiritual life. They need to be walking with God, walking in humility, seeking him daily, experiencing his forgiveness, living a holy life, putting off sin, pursuing right priorities, sharing Christ, seeking to help others grow in their relationship with the Lord. They need to make sure that their own spiritual lives are thriving, first of all. Now, Paul was serious about his own spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 9.27, he said, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. When he wrote to Titus, or to, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, he said the same thing in essence. He said, pay, a clo pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Look after yourself first. Why do elders need to be on guard for their own spiritual lives? Well, let me give you a couple of different reasons. Very first is that uh, with leaders and teachers in the flock, it's possible for them to become so accustomed to God's word that they stop being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They stop applying what they're learning for their own lives, and they need to remember that when they open up God's book and they're preparing to preach a sermon or an ABF class or lead a life group, that they are there not to give a lesson, that they're opening up God's word first to hear from God, to let him teach them. Here's another reason they need to be on guard for themselves, and that is because their position as elders, they may come to think that because they're elders that they have it together spiritually when in reality, they may be on the verge of failing spiritually. I've seen that happen in some elders' lives. Guys who have been serving as elders, and, and I didn't even know, but I found out one of them was in adultery back in Illinois, and we had to address that in his life. It's easy for you to think that you have this position, and you can go ahead and continue in sin. No, it, you can't do that. They also have important priorities in their own lives, but elders are responsible to make sure that the church is living out the God-given priorities that God has given them for the church. And distractions, just like in our own personal life, Paul said that we can become entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Well, churches can do the same thing. We can become so entangled in putting on events and activities and doing uh, sermon series and things like that that we forget that our priority is not to put on events not to hold services our priority is to help others be passionate followers of Christ to make disciples and if we do all the other things but we're not making disciples we're failing as a church elders need to be on guard for themselves because it's easy for them to forget that the church has priorities. An elder's example is diminished if they're not walking closely with the Lord. They can't lead others to lead, live holy lives if they themselves aren't. They can't tell people to live out God's priorities if the people don't see that lived out in their own lives. And imagine the damage when a church leader falls into sin. That almost without exception, that when a church leader falls into sin, the damage done is greater on other people's lives 
than if someone else was to fall into sin. And it leaves deep scars in people's lives, in resentment, in distrust. So they need to be careful for their own lives first. But they also guard the flock because Paul said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now, God calls us sheep. Psalm 23, he's our shepherd. We're the sheep. Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. And he described us as his sheep. Like it or not, we are sheep. Now, that is not always a compliment from what I've been told about sheep. And maybe some of you have had sheep or goats, and you know how they can behave. Sheep are the only truly domesticated animal. They cannot survive without a shepherd's care, and that's us. We need shepherds in the church to care for us, to feed us, to protect us, and at times even to discipline us if we decide, I'm just going wayward right now. Any of you, have any of you ever had that thought before? Well, there's times we need to be disciplined. Well, why do we need them to guard us? Why guard sheep? Well, the answer is very simple. We're vulnerable. Verse 29, he said, After I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. And people, savage wolves, they don't care whether you're young or old, man, woman, or child, well-seasoned saint or brand-new believer, that they will not spare the flock. And if elders are not vigilant, that these guys will come and they will harm us. Now, I've spent a, a significant amount of time studying villains in my life. I've read Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man comic books. And here's what I've discovered, that almost without exception, you can always count on the superhero having a supervillain, an enemy who almost matches them in their power and their abilities. But the thing is that in the comic books, the villain is always obvious, isn't it? They look like bad guys. But the Bible tells us our enemy is not easy to spot. He's hard to see. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul said that Satan masquerades as an angel of light, that he was once one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious angel in all of God's creation. And if you and I were to have seen him, or even to see him right now, he would appear as a majestic, glorious being. And we would look at him and say, I've never seen such beauty. You think, how could that be a bad guy? But the reality is, according to Peter, that he's really a roaring lion, and he's prowling around seeking those whom he may devour. And he will end us if he gets the opportunity. And he does that every day in people's lives. He deceives them into buying lies so that they either do not come to Christ or when they know Christ, they don't continuously walk with him or maybe someone ends someone else's life or even their own life. And Satan uses two ploys to try and attack us that Paul gives here. Verse 29, he says, Savage wolves will come in among you. Predators from the outside will come into the church. In the early centuries, they didn't always have teachers that were in that church that could consistently teach them. And so there were traveling teachers that would come to a city 
and they would come to a church and teach in that church for, for a time. But there were also some who were false teachers who started attending and tried to influence the flock into error. Now today, we don't have people doing that for the most part. Most of the false teachers that we come across, they come on the TV, they come on the internet, in YouTube, on the radio. Sometimes they even come to your door. Knock, knock, knock. I'm Elder so-and-so, or I'm Brother so-and-so from the Watchtower Society. Okay, so they, they come in from the outside. And then there's the other threat Paul refers to, and that is people who are already in the church. And it may be people that are sitting in the pew next to you, or leading worship, or teaching a small group, that they may end up trying to deceive us later. He says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay, the truth is that we're vulnerable. And our dangers come from the outside, and they can also come from inside the church. Now, in the first two centuries of the church, there were all sorts of errors the church had to deal with. Um, let me give you some examples. Galatians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, James, 1 John, Jude, 2 Peter were letters that were all written to counter error in the church. Galatians was written because individuals were teaching that you had to accept Christ and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was an error. Colossians was written to counter the matching one or the other error that Jesus is either not truly the son of, he's not truly God or he's not truly man. 1 Corinthians was written to address practical error, and it talks about just about every type of practical error that there, there was. There was immorality. There were people sleeping with, with people they shouldn't be sleeping with. There were, there were other people living in sin, suing each other, prideful attitudes, cliques, divisions, slandering, unloving behavior, drunkenness. James and 1 John were written to counter the lie that you can be saved, and it doesn't matter how you live. And Jude and Second Peter were merely, they were written as warnings to the church that there were false teachers that were around and realize it, contend for the faith and be careful about, about those who bring error. They weren't warned that these false teachers would bring perverted doctrine and teach perverted lifestyles. Now there are many errors today that we encounter. Some, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Hare Krishna, are easy to spot, right? But there are others that are harder to pick out. There are websites that disseminate errors, and I have yet to spot a single website promoting error that puts a warning on the page saying, this site contains heresy. But they're all over the place. I've known people who have bought into error because they came across someone that sounded good on YouTube and had a YouTube channel and some, had some interesting or uh, amazing teachings that they had never heard of before. And they walk away from the faith because they've gotten sucked in. They didn't have the discernment to realize this is really error. So be cautious where you get your information from, especially if it's on the web. Paul didn't tell the elders, don't worry about the flock. They're able to take care of themselves. Instead, he said that they need protection. And give, let me give you a couple examples, popular ones that uh, may, maybe you're familiar with. 
a lady, Gwen Shamblin. She was popular for her teaching ministry, especially among women, teaching them to pursue God and to take care of themselves and, and particularly to lose weight. Well, she veered off into an ancient heresy that was called Arianism. That's at the foundation of the Watchtower Society, Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny that Jesus is fully God. Beware of also other errors taught like the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel. In case you don't know it, Joel Osteen is a false teacher. He's very popular among teach people and maybe uh, to you, but he is a false teacher. And other individuals, word faith movement teachers like Joyce Meyer, she's popular, but she's a heretic. She's taught that Jesus ceased to be the son of God when he went to, cross, went to the cross, that he had to be born again, that we become little gods, which is heresy. And she heard that she herself has become sinless, that she no longer sins. That's error. Stay away from the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel. Be aware also of practical errors like people that are tolerating immorality, that are sowing discord, that are slandering and gossiping. Be careful who, who teaches in the church, who you put in position of leadership like elders. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 contain qualifications for elders that they must mark that individual's life. And on top of that, they should model the priorities of the church and themselves be passionately following, the, following Christ and making disciples. How does error make its way into the church? When elders let their guard down. Elders are the church's frontline defense to error. So let's look also at the fourth point, which is the Savior's preventative. Verse 32, Paul said, now I commend you to. This sounds like it's maybe a recommendation that he's encouraging them to try something out for size here. But it's not I commend to you. It's I commend you to. Paul is committing or entrusting the elders and the church of Ephesus to two things. To God and to God's word. Two things that they need. The first, I commend or entrust you to God. Who's better at taking care of us? Well, of course, God is. But elders are God's under-shepherd. And even though they're the under-shepherd, the Lord is still the shepherd that protects us, and we need his rod and his staff to care for us. Jude 24 and 25, uh, Jude ends his letter by saying, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Jude calls God there the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. How do I know that I'll be saved? Because God promised it, and because God is the one who is keeping me, and he is able to keep me from stumbling. Romans 8.38 says, Nothing's able to, se to separate me from the love of God. Why? Because he's the one that keeps us. The savage wolves are out there. They may attack. God's given elders to guard the flock, but ultimately the greatest protector of all is the Lord himself. And so that's why Paul says, I entrust you, I commend you to God. But he also said, I commend or entrust you to the word of his grace. For three years, Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus, 
and he taught people the word of God day in and day out. Paul's major, major pastimes in Ephesus were sharing Christ with people and teaching them God's word, helping them to grow as disciples. He said he, he appealed to them. He pled with them every day with tears. He was serious about this thing. Now, when Paul warns the elders of danger, he says he commits them to the word of God's grace. We need regular intake of God's word in order to grow as believers and to be safe. And Paul emphasizes that it is the word of his grace. Many errors are essentially perversions of God's grace. And there's two forms of those, those errors. The first is the error that, that says you are saved by God's grace, but God's love is conditioned on your performance or your good works. The second perversion of God's grace is thinking I'm saved by God's grace and it doesn't matter how I live after I come to Christ. That's what's called licentiousness. The reason that, that we can be so certain that we should obey Christ after we come to Christ is because when God saves us, he makes a miracle in our lives. He changes us. It's called regeneration. It's called the new birth. He borns us again. And so he, we have now him living inside us so that we will want to live a life that is different. I didn't want to live the Christian life before I came to Christ. I wasn't choosing to live the Christian life when I accepted Christ. I didn't understand everything that there was in following Christ. But guess what? God changed my heart where I wanted to do the things that God wanted me to do. I started wanting to pick up this book because I wanted to learn more about God. I realized I was his child. I wanted to obey him. Not because someone told me you shouldn't swear anymore. And I swore a lot before. I didn't stop doing the other things that I did because someone told me don't do those things. When I found out they were sins, I didn't want to do them anymore because I now wanted to follow God. It's the word of his grace. In verse 32, Paul said, it's able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. There's two things I found in scripture that build us up in our faith. One is the word of God and the other is meaningful fellowship with other believers when we're ministering to one another. We can't grow without God's word. It's God's message of the gospel. It's his promise of eternal life. It tells us of our inheritance in heaven. It instructs us in what to believe, the promises to cling to, the instructions to give heed to. And those are what build us up in our faith. And so that's why each day we need to be in this book. We need it. It's for our growth. It's for our health. The last thing that Paul tells these elders is the servant's model. He reminds them of his example. For three years, his life pointed them to the path that they should follow as leaders. And he said, that, or Jesus said, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's, what, that's the example that Paul followed, that he came as a servant to follow the Lord and to serve others. He wasn't in it for the money. And so verse 33 says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. That may sound a little bit strange to us. We, of course, we think silver and gold, uh, that's worth a lot. But, uh, hey, uh, my wife, I think we got this at the retail store or something like that. Or we get different clothes at uh, uh, Costco. Uh, my clothes, there's not a lot of money in my clothes. But at that time, 
clothing was where people put a lot of their wealth. And so he says, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or even their clothing, which is the opposite of many of the word, faith, and prosperity gospel preachers. Prosperity gospel, prosperity. Guess who are the ones who prosper? Usually it's the teachers that are saying, send us your money that you need to give us more. So uh, he adds that these hands ministered to my own need and to the men who were with me. When Paul went around, he was supported by two different things. There were churches that supported him. There was the church that supported him where he was ministering at. But there were times that he paid his own way. And that's what he says when he was in Ephesus. He paid his own way. He worked while he was while he was there, and he even supported his help, his co-workers. That would be people like Timothy and Titus and Silas and Luke, that he paid their way. Now, Scripture calls us as a church to honor those who serve us. First Timothy 5.17 says double honor to those elders who rule well. Double honor refers to supporting them to do their work. It's biblical and it's healthy for the church to do that. But Paul decided to forego that when he was in Ephesus and to support his co-workers. So he's able to say that elders and pastors, they're not in it for the money. And then he goes on to say how he modeled the example of working hard and helping the weak in giving. And he quotes a statement by Jesus that this is only the only time that we ever hear of this passage, this statement here. It's not found in the Gospels, but it's from Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That was true of Paul, that he realized that. Now, the last thing we see in, in this passage is the shepherd's affection, deep affection for the flock. And we see their deep affection for him. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And what did the people begin to do? They began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him. The verb tells us they kept on kissing him. They were so grateful for this man's input in their lives. For three years, he cared for them. He pled with them with tears in his eyes as he was teaching them God's word. And like many European cultures, men kissing men without any sexual connotation. Do we have anything like that in, in our Western culture today? the deep affection that a man can have for another man. And don't tell me it's the bro hug. Hey, bro. No. These guys were deeply affectionate for one another. They were weeping on one another's shoulders. And verse 38 says they were grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And next week, we'll look at, at what happens when he goes on the rest of his journey back to Jerusalem and when he's in Jerusalem. But, but let's, let's talk just for a second about how does this apply to our lives. Well, let me give you three groups that I'd like to speak to. One is the elders of our church and pastors. The second would be all of us as a church. And the third would be the men in the church. Okay, first to the elders and pastors of our church. John Sacco, Dave Stook, James Hellowell, our pastors, Tim Johnson, John Piper, that uh, 
They are not titled as elders, but they serve as elders in this flock. And anyone else that's going to serve as an elder or pastor in the future. Men, your job is to guard the flock. You're to shepherd this flock because it's the flock that Jesus paid for with his own blood. It's precious to him. Make sure that you are passionately following Christ in your own life and lead the flock. But know this, making decisions is going to be a small part of your job. You already understand this, but it's a small part of your job because the lion's share of your job is to watch over the flock. It's to model what it is to passionately follow Christ. It's to equip the saints to serve. It's to share Christ and help others know how to disciple other individuals and constantly to watch out for predators. Whether it's from the outside or you may find that people from in the inside have become influenced by false teachers and we need to correct them. Okay, the second group I want to talk to is the church. It's all of us. Let the elders lead. If they're doing their job, if they're passionately modeling what it is to shepherd the flock, if they're living their life for Christ, then trust them. It doesn't mean you follow them blindly off a cliff, but if you've got a concern, go to them and talk with them. And like Hebrews 13, 17 says, let the elders persuade you. That's what obey your leaders and submit to them. That obey your leaders, it's let them persuade you. Give them the benefit of the doubt. The Holy Spirit has put them in that position. We trust God is working through their lives. So if you disagree with them, go talk to them. But other than that, trust them as they lead the church. And the third, I want to speak to the men in the church. We need the men in our church to stand up and serve as elders. Now, every church I've been in, every church I've known has had this problem. That men are reluctant to stand up and take the role of being an elders. They feel inadequate. They feel unqualified. They feel like they've got too many other things to do. And they don't make it any priority in their lives ever to be an elder. Well, how do, I, how do I start this process? Well, know what the qualifications of an elder are. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give the qualifications for an elder, but elders should also be, as I mentioned before, modeling a passionate walk with God and modeling what it is to bear witness of Christ and help others grow as disciples. But make it your goal in life that, that you want your life to be characterized by all those qualities so that one day when the church is looking for an elder, that they would look to you. doesn't mean that you have to serve as an elder. No one has to, and not everyone will. But make it your goal that you want to be qualified as an elder. When we were in college ministry, I remember one young collegiate, Carl McCarthy, that he and I were talking late one evening, and he said, you know, about three or four years ago, I heard about being an elder, and I made it my goal that by the time I was 24, I wanted to be qualified as an elder. Now, 24 is kind of young to be an elder, but he at least wanted his life to be characterized by the things that an elder's life should be characterized by. That's a great goal, young men, to make your life one that one day 
they will ask you to serve as an, as an elder. So Paul is speaking to these elders of the church of Ephesus. He's warning them of a very clear and present danger. He's calling them to guard the flock, but he's also challenging them to shepherd as the leaders that they should be. And those are timeless things. That applies to every church in every century and applies to Hillside Community Church right here and right now too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that uh, we're mindful every time that, that I get up in the, in the pulpit, every time we open up the word to read and to hear your word preach, we're mindful of what Paul said, that all scripture is inspired by God, that it's breathed out by you, that it's profitable in our lives for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that for us to be able to grow in our spiritual life, we need to understand your word. And so we're grateful for your word that we can look at. And, and even though some may think of this portion of scripture as sort of a travel log and maybe a, a tape recording of what Paul said, but it sure is a whole lot more. It's teaching us the priorities for what an elder is to be doing in the church and how the church is to respond to elders. It's teaching us about our vulnerability to uh, danger, that we could buy into false teaching somewhere along the road, and, and we need to have others to watch over us and protect us. Lord, thank you for giving us the design that you put in the church, that elders are here to care for us. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.